Well, good morning, Life Church. Good morning to all of you who are joining us for church online this morning. It's great to have you. Hope you're having a great Sunday. Maybe we can make it a little bit better. Well, we're continuing our series called One Story, uh, taking ourselves all the way through the Bible from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. And today we find ourselves in the book of Job. Just about everybody's heard of Job from the Bible. People say the patience of Job and things like that. It's an incredible story, and that's where we're going to pick up this morning. Job chapter 1, verse 1. But before I read that, let me just tell you, if you hear wailing song uh, sounds in the background, uh, don't be alarmed. I'm shooting this uh, uh, early in the morning uh, today on uh, the edge of a peacock sanctuary. So that's what you hear. I assure you no one is in distress except for maybe Job, as we'll see. Chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their home on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom, it says. So the story here begins in the land of Uz. Now we just got to figure out where Uz was. Verse 3 says it was in the east. Well, east of what? East of Israel. Uh, Job was not part of Israel. This story is unique in that it doesn't involve the story of Israel. So you could put the setting like this. A long time ago in a land far, far away. Now, the problems in this book are the problems of the human race. We're all the story of Job. Now, in the beginning of the story, everything is as we think it should be. Job is a godly man. He's so conscientious that he even offers sacrifices for his children just in case. Did you notice that? He says, maybe they sinned. So he's not taking any chances. But friends, trouble is coming to the land of Uz. Uz will be the place where some very, very bad things happen to a very good man. Us will be a place not just where suffering comes, but where it comes with hair on it, with no warning and no explanation at all. Everybody will spend some time in the land of us. And some of you might be there right now. And this is your story. Maybe someone around you is in the land of us even right now. Now in verse six, you'll notice that there's this incredible change of scenery here. So we gotta think of this story like a play that takes place on two different stages. There's the upper stage, that's the activity that's going on in heaven. And then there's a lower stage which features the activity that's going down on this earth here. Now, we the readers, we know what's going on in both settings, but the characters on earth certainly don't. All they see is the lower stage. They know nothing about what's happening on the upper stage that we're gonna find out about right now. All right, verse six. Listen to this words. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Listen to these words. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, 
Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Now, this is interesting to me because it shows us Satan is not freewheeling. He doesn't have free reign over everything. He has limited authority and he is subject to God. He's on a leash. So from that point, that incredible scene we see in heaven, Satan goes from the upper stage and before long, Job loses everything. He loses his wealth, his flocks. He even loses his children. It's tragic. So how will he respond? Will Satan be proved right here? As we pick up in verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, it says, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. That's an incredible response. We're told that Job grieves and then he falls to the ground in worship. He speaks words of blessing and praise. He does not sin in any way, not even with his words. Now in chapter two, we switch back to the upper stage in heaven. Verse three, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Same words as before, but now he goes on. God says, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Now look at, listen to these words by Satan. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Again, the leash, but God lets out a little bit more leash for Satan here. Now from here on out, all the action's gonna be down here on the lower stage on earth. Because at first glance, this activity in heaven looks strange, looks a little bit confusing. Looks kind of like a cosmic wager between God and Satan, where God's using Job and his family kind of as pawns to win a bet. That's what it looks like. But that's not what's happening at all. Because the key question on the upper stage, I mean, really the key question of the whole book of Job comes from chapter one, verse nine, where he says, does Job fear God for nothing? Because here's the essence of what Satan is saying. Job is devoted to you and he worships you because it's in his self-interest to do so. You scratch his back, he scratches yours. You think Job loves you. The truth is Job loves you the way children love the ice cream man. You turn off the faucet of blessing and you watch how fast he'll turn off the faucet of devotion. See, we look at this book, we see this whole exchange as if God is on trial. Like with all the suffering in the world, can there still be a good God? On the lower stage, that's what seems to be the primary question. But we've seen the upper stage. And the truth is, the reality is, this book is a, is a place where the human race is on trial. And Satan, also known as the accuser, is the prosecuting attorney. All right, let's go on here. Chapter two, verse seven. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes, it says. So Job gets hit with this second whole wave of suffering. And this time there's some differences in his response. This time he doesn't fall to the ground in worship. He goes to sit on an ash heap, which is really the town dump. Maybe he's grieving, maybe he's isolated because it's possible that everyone in his village thinks he's got leprosy because of the way he looks. Now here's his wife's comment in verse nine. She says, his wife says to Job, curse God and die. 
that could not have been very encouraging to Job. That is not a Tony Robbins thing to say, not at all. Now, let me just say a word about Mrs. Job at this point, because Mrs. Job gets dumped on a lot. Think about this for just a moment. She too has lost everything she has. She's lost all of her children. She used to, now she has to give care to a horribly diseased man until he dies. She used to be in the wealthiest family in the East. Now she'll be left alone and utterly destitute. So she gives voice to some thoughts that Job has probably already processed. I mean, notice what Job does say in verse 10. He says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? So Job is struggling a little bit to understand now. Like, is God the kind of being who will send evil? I mean, is God really good? That's the question on the lower stage. And that phrase at the end of verse 10 shows that Job is thinking now God might be the one who sends trouble his way. Because after the first wave of suffering in chapter 1, verse 22, it simply says, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing or by, uh, in what he said. But now in second chapter, there's a little qualification. Job doesn't sin in what he said, but in his heart, it looks like he's begun to struggle just a little bit. All right, let's pick up in verse 11. When Job's three friends heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. So their love is so strong and their grief is so great for Job that they plan to sit next to him and share his anguish, sitting with him for seven days and seven nights. Amazing. So let me pause just real quickly and ask you this question. Do you have friends who will be that way with you? Do you have people who will be there when trouble comes? And if you don't, I hope that you will develop a few good, good relationships and good friends. It is worth the time and effort, it really is. I hope you start building those kinds of relationships because it takes time. That's just being realistic. I hope you don't wait to start that till the day that trouble comes, until the day that you find yourself in the land of us. I hope you don't wait till it's too late because in the church of Jesus, nobody should ever have to sit on the ash heap by themselves. All right, now finally, after seven days of silence, Job speaks. It's a remarkable thing. Imagine the tension that's in the air there. It's been seven days and seven nights, and his friends just wait to hear what he's going to say. And you understand this. If he could just repeat what he said in chapter one, the Lord gives, the Lord takes. May the name of the Lord be praised. If he could just repeat that, the whole test would be over, and this would be a very, very short book. But look at chapter three, verse one. Here's what he says. After this, Job opened his mouth and curse the day of his birth. This is the kind of thing that keeps Job off the motivational speaker circuit right here. For the next 28 chapters, Job pours out bitterness and confusion and sorrow and anger towards God, so much so that his three friends just can't stand it, and they respond. His friends' names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they can't stand listening to all this. And most of the rest of the book is a series of speeches, Job's speeches, and their responses. I mean, truthfully, mostly it's arguments back and forth. But think about this. Job lost his 10 children. He lost all of his flocks, all of his wealth. He's lost now his health and he thinks he's gonna die. And then his friends, Beavis and Butthead, say something that just breaks the needle on the stupid meter. They say, Job, this is because you sinned. You brought this suffering on yourself. You had it coming. And then Job just goes ballistic there. And then the third friend gets in his face and says in verse 13, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then, then free of fault, 
You will lift up your face. You will stand firm and without fear. Huh. Put away the sin that's in your hand, he says. In other words, Job, your sin, you brought this suffering on yourself. Here's what we need to understand. All three friends here are just giving voice to one central idea. It was the primary theology of suffering in that day. It's, what, uh, it's written about in what some scholars call Mesopotamian wisdom literature. And it's also sometimes talked about as the doctrine of retribution. And the idea of it is pretty simple. It's this, goodness results in prosperity, wickedness or evil brings about suffering. So they're saying, Job, if you are suffering badly, you must have brought it on yourself. If you'll just repent, everything will work out and you won't have to suffer because God doesn't let good people suffer. Now the arguments that are voiced by Job's friends here, it gets repeated by Christians in our day. Suffering people say those that make it worse are the ones who say things like, well, if you just prayed with enough faith, you'd be healed. Implication, it's your fault. Or if you just bind Satan, you wouldn't be experiencing this. Or your suffering is a wake-up call. You need to figure out where you sinned. You need to figure out where you've gone wrong and repent. Put away the sin that's in your hand and your life will go smoothly. I've heard it said that arguing with some people is like playing chess with a pigeon. You can make all the brilliant moves you want, but at some point in time, the pigeon is just going to knock over all the pieces and crap on the board and strut around like it won anyway. Now, Job's friends are the pigeons here, and they keep pointing the finger of blame at Job. Now, Jesus, you should know, he rejects this idea, by the way. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus talks about a current event. There was a tower in Jerusalem. Uh, it was called the Tower of Siloam. It falls down and it kills 18 people. And everyone in Israel was saying they must have been guilty of something because God's obviously punishing them. That's why the tower fell on them. But Jesus says, do you think they were more guilty than all the other people in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. So Jesus rejects that notion. Well, Job's friends just keep pounding on him, pounding on him. You must have done something to deserve this. And Job just cries out at one point, how long will you crush me and torment me with your words? What an awful thing to have to say. How long will you crush me and torment me with your words? Friends, let's never be a community like that where we crush one another with our words. God forbid. I mean, Job here doesn't say that he's never sinned. He just says that before his life was blessed and now it's a nightmare and there's no corresponding catastrophic sin to account for it. So they're saying, why why this happened, Job? Why is God doing this to you? Job says, I don't know. I don't know. And if his friends were wise, they would have said something like, I don't know either. But Job, I want you to know that you're not alone and we love you. But Job just pours his heart out before God and he does something that people in anguish often do. They contradict themselves a lot. Because Job here, he questions God and he clings to God. He yells at God and he yells for God. Job is all over the map. And in chapter 23, verse 3, he says, If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. What he's saying is, I wish I could take God to court. I wish I could sue him. I wish there was some program like Judge Judy where you could sue God. Or if only God would show up in person and we could just fight man to man. Well, Job, be careful what you wish for. Because in chapter 38, Job gets his wish. In verse 1, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. 
And what do you think that moment was like? God speaks here. And I think he uses big God voice here when he speaks with Job. Here's what he says, chapter, uh, chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And I can imagine Job is just there like a deer in the headlights, shaking in his boots. Now you'll notice, if you read through the book of Job, that God never does get around to answering Job's questions of why. He could have done that, could have told him about the upper stage and the lower stage, but he doesn't. He just asks him a bunch of questions that Job can't answer. Now why does God do this? Is God just trying to prove that he's smarter than Job? Is he just sick of all Job's whining? I don't believe so. I think God is pointing out something here, pointing out that Job has a finite mind and a limited point of view. Job is not God, period. And to the end of his life, Job never does find out, as far as we know, he never does find out about the conversation about him in heaven. But Job finds out something better. He finds out who God is, and that's enough. That's more than enough. Now, the hinge of this whole book comes in chapter 42, verse 5. Job says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, that doesn't mean he's saying, I just want to live in squalor now. Now, that's a Hebrew way of talking about repentance. And then God speaks to Job's friends, verse 7. There's a little comedy in this one. It says, The Lord said to Eliphaz, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now imagine their amazement. Job has been whining on and on, complaining about God for this entire book, and they think they've been sticking up for God. And then God shows up and says, nope, Job was right. You guys are wrong, and I'm angry with you. And considering what happened to Job, hearing that from God would not bring comfort to them. But then God goes on to say, if Job will pray for you, I'll forgive you. And I imagine Job and his friends had a pretty interesting conversation then. And then finally, Job prays and God forgives them. Now in chapter 42 and verse starting number, number 12, it's the last passage we're going to look at here. It says, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. Now, if you're a numbers person here, you already notice this. Job's flocks doubled. His wealth doubled. That's interesting. His children don't double. God must really like Job. Anyway, he's got three daughters. And the first one says, first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuch. Nowhere in all the land, it says, were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. Now there's some stuff here that we tend to miss, but it would just jump out at the ancient reader because it's very unusual, striking. First, the writer gives the names of Job's daughters, but not his sons. This is unheard of. In ancient Hebrew genealogies, the boys were the ones mentioned, not the girls. That's not the way it worked. And not only that, but he gives them kind of weird names. I mean, usually Hebrew names are serious. They express character or hopes or virtue or truth in some way. 
These three names are all about the beauty of creation. Jemima is the name for dove. It's a, a bird that was prized for its beauty. Keziah means cinnamon. That was a prized spice in that day. And the oddest one is Karen Hapuch. You think I'm making this up, but I'm not. Translated literally, it means horn of eyeshadow. Job named his daughter after makeup. <laughs> this would be like naming your daughter Clinique or Estee Lauder or something like that. And not only does it give them these strange, snappy names, but he gives them an inheritance. And in an ancient male-dominated world, a father with seven sons would never, ever do that because daughters in the ancient world were not thought of as strategic. Sons were. But Job cuts his daughters in on the deal. And why does the writer include all this stuff? I think it's because now Job is becoming gratuitously good and uncontrollably generous, and he just gives for no reason at all. Does that remind you of anybody? Sounds a lot like God. The Bible's showing us that Satan was dead wrong about Job. He was dead wrong about the human race. He was dead wrong about God. And the book of Job is written not as a response to some cosmic wager, no. It was written so that you and I could know what the truth is about us and about God. And the central question in Job is, can a human being hold on to God and to faith and love when it doesn't seem to be paying off at all? And the answer is yes, and one did. I mean, Job never did ever see the upper stage. Job does not know that something cosmic and eternal was at work in his little life. Broke, sick, confused, and hopeless, Job's faithfulness in suffering was being used by God. How? To vindicate God's whole wild adventure of covenant love with his people. This story has been used for thousands of years to give comfort, comfort to people and inspire people in the land of Uz. People who are ready to just throw in the towel and give up. But this says to them, hang on, keep going, keep going, don't give up now. Keep trusting God, keep trusting God. Now we can say that and we can believe it because we know something that Job did not. We know that one day this same magnificent God went from the upper stage to the lower stage to become one of us. And he took on all the suffering of this broken world, all of Job's suffering, all of your suffering, all of mine, so that one day we would all live on the upper stage and suffering would be done once and for all. Now, it's likely that some of you watching are suffering in the land of us even today. Why? I don't know. How long will it last? Again, I don't know. Does your response matter? More than you could ever dream. Because the eyes of heaven are on your life and what you do is of eternal significance. And how you live, it matters more than you know. So keep trusting, keep hanging on the God. Now let's take this to God in prayer, can we? Our Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you so much for your word which guides us. Thank you for the story of Job and how we get a window into how things work in the spiritual realm and all the things that went on that Job did not see. In the same way, there are things going on that we do not see. And God, you are at work and we're confident of that. So Lord, help us to fix our trust on you and only you, Lord, to trust in you and hold on and not cut off our only lifeline when we're going through something difficult. Lord, may we cling to you even harder. So God, we trust you, we proclaim our trust in you. And I ask, Lord, that for all my brothers and sisters that are watching right now that are suffering in some way, 
Lord, would you be with them? Would you comfort them? Would you remind them that you are with them? And you know everything that's happening, everything that's going to happen, and your desire is for them to cling to you and trust in you. We love you, Lord, and we do trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us. I uh, hope you have a wonderful day. Until we meet again, let me leave you with this. Go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, the God who came still comes, and the God who spoke still speaks. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. See you soon. Mm -hmm.